Hello and welcome to Soft Spot episode number 50. I'm so excited to have made it to this milestone in just under two years. That means mathematically I've been doing better than expected at putting out two episodes per month. Yay me! On that note, this will be our last episode of 2020, and we're going to take a little bit of a break until around February of 2021 at the foundation and probably across the world. We're really looking forward to the new year, and we have a lot planned for the spring, including the virtual soft imperatives forum in February, the March Global Soft Symposium in Tampa, April's Modern Warfare Week in North Carolina, and our anniversary celebration in May on the Monday of Sophic Week in Tampa. You can learn about all of those and get registered at my.gsoft.org upcoming events, and that link is in the episode description. On to today's episode. This is an interview we did last month with Colonel Retired Keith Nightingale. He has a new book out called Phoenix Rising that we'll talk about quite a bit. And if it makes you want to buy the book, the link is also in this episode description. I was introduced to the book a couple of months ago when Stu and Rick and I were on a road trip from Florida to Fort Bragg. Stu was reading the book at the time, and every time he would read a passage that he liked, he would then reread it out loud to all of us. And he really liked this book, so that happened a lot. Colonel Nightingale is from Ojai, California. When he was in college, he joined the ROTC, and after that he graduated and was commissioned into the Army on the same day in 1965. From commissioning, he went to Fort Benning and immediately signed up for jump school and ranger school. As he was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, he decided to make the Army his career. He served two tours in Vietnam with Airborne and Ranger, both American and Vietnamese units. He commanded Airborne Battalions in both the 509th and the 82nd Airborne. He later commanded the 175th Rangers and the Ranger Brigade. He was a member of the Iran Hostage Rescue Attempt Operation Eagle Claw, the Assault Force Commander in both Grenada and Panama, and managed the Department of Defense Counter Drug Support Operations in Latin America. He has continued to serve America in many other positions since then, but this interview is mostly going to focus on his experiences with Eagle Claw, Grenada, and the formation of USOCOM. So Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year, and please enjoy our interview with Keith Nightingale. And then if we want to break it down. Wow. Global Soft Foundation. My immediate reaction was this is awesome. Special Operations Community. You have our support. Let's move. Welcome to Soft Spot. Colonel Nightingale wrote a book that's been recently released. It's called Phoenix Rising from the Ashes of Desert One to the Rebirth of U.S. Special Operations. So amazing read. Um, it's based off his notes and stuff. Sir, what made you write this book? Because there's a lot of passion in this book. Um, I think there were a couple of things. First is I wanted to kind of get the first hand facts as I knew them uh, in as a matter of public record. Uh, there was not much mentioned about the Iran rescue in open text other than just, you know, it was bad, they didn't plan, it was a horrible disaster, etc. cetera. Uh, no relationship between uh, the rescue effort itself and the rise of special operations forces. Uh, the, uh, you know, the capture of bin Laden, in my mind, was the direct result of the failure to succeed at Desert One. Uh, and all of that history is lost, particularly the difficulty between uh, the rescue attempt and the, uh, the development of special ops forces, which was resisted mightily uh, by the internal services and the bureaucracy uh, less General Meyer and the Army Chief, the, then the Army Chief of Staff. So we are able to do the Sante raid toward the latter part of the Vietnam War, very complex um, operation that went into, you know, pretty heavily denied space. And in the course of 10 years, we atrophied significantly in capability. What was it like to see that and how much of that played on the actual execution of Desert One? The Sante raid was markedly different 
than what we needed to do for Iran. Much shorter distances they could launch uh, in uh, covert security near the border. Uh, Iran was much different. In terms of the atrophying, anybody that was in the army it, by 1970-71 knew that the army was basically uh, a disaster. Uh, the officers didn't know what their jobs were. The troops were in charge. Uh, there was, you know, cliques, drugs, uh, huge racial issues going on. Uh, the army was just basically on its ass, uh, which is why Abrams decided to use the Rangers as a developmental model. Uh, and, you know, the, from a professional officer's viewpoint, we were all dismayed, you know, what are we going to do? We need to have an army that actually works. Uh, and the thought of a kind of a special ops rescue force, I must admit, was never part of my mindset uh, at the time until the uh, hostage situation came down. Uh, and General Vaught, you know, we all looked on the news and saw the hostages. Well, what are we going to do about it? Uh, you know, we, you know, I'm laboring in the bowels of the Pentagon. I didn't, I didn't know what we were going to do about it. There was no discussion. We got no orders or requirements. Uh, and then all of a sudden, General Vaught calls me on the phone upstairs and says, I want you up in 2C840. And report to Colonel King, who was our chief of staff. What and, rank were you, sir? Um, major, major officer. That's awesome. Hey, sir, can you just give us a brief description of the concept of Eagle Claw, and then you know a couple of the main points, like you know that you want everybody to understand about Eagle Claw. Well, first of all, it was very evolutionary. Uh, the first time we kind of actually sat down. I described in the book, uh, we had no real forces that we were, uh, that we had on the shelf. We had the first special ops wing in the Air Force, which, you know, we weren't quite certain how good they were going to be or what they were going to do. We had Delta just coming off of their uh, initial, call it, uh, confirmation operation uh, exercise before they became actually an active part of the inventory. And we had no idea what we were going to do. We knew the hostages were in the embassy. Well, the question is, okay, how do we get there? What do we do and how do we do it? And we had no idea. Uh, you know, we sat down, I looked at trains, planes, automobiles, commercial flights in, railroads, all of the above, and how do we get uh, the rescue force, which we knew would be Delta, uh, into the embassy and get them and the hostages back? We had no idea. The intelligence was almost zero. Uh, we knew the embassy uh, was 27 acres, three major building compound areas, one of which was highly secure, uh, but we didn't know where the hostages were. So we knew we had to sweep 27 acres uh, of buildings, hostages, and extract them. Well, how do you do that? I mean, we were like 1,200 miles away from the target. Uh, and we knew very quickly that none of the countries that bounded Iran would allow us to play there. So it was going to have to be something extremely covert. The Turks allowed us to be on the ground if we were not obvious and we hid ourselves. The Saudis would allow us overflight, but we couldn't land there. Uh, Pakistan was never an issue uh, of, in terms of availability. So, you know, we kept necking this thing down. What we did on Desert One was the only way we could have done it with the forces and the information we had at the time. The key piece of information that we did not have is where are the hostages? We did not know within that compound. 
that required Delta to have a maximum size force, which also translated to the maximum available helicopters. You lose the helicopters, you lose the force, you can't do the job. The whole thing was done on a margin, a very thin margin. Contradicting the Holloway board, we did have a major rehearsal in March. We wanted to go in March because that was the last window we had in terms of darkness. We needed dark to go in and dark to go out. Every day we postponed was another day it got a little bit lighter. Uh, in early March, Pierre Salinger said, I've got this opening with the French and, you know, we can do a negotiated settlement, you know, give me some time to do it. So Carter told him to do that and stood us down. We knew from our own intelligence that was a completely wasted uh, effort and would never come to anything. Uh, but the thing played out and finally in early April, uh, Carter knew that he had no options and then authorized the rescue to take place. But when it did, we were two hours in daylight going in and two hours in daylight going out. It was a 48-hour operation. Desert One, Desert Two to uh, the warehouse near the embassy was day one. The extraction was about 0200 on day two. And that was going to be relatively quick, but it required 48 hours, essentially, of exposure. Uh, the uh, C-141's X-filling would be in daylight in Iranian airspace. And that was an issue that required us to do several things uh, of a conventional nature to keep the Iranian Air Force uh, in their hangars or at least destroy their capability. Uh, that's sort of it in a nutshell. Key points, uh, we never had the information from the agency as to precisely where the hostages were. That required a uh, maximum force from Delta for the 27 acres. That required six operational helicopters. You lose any one of those legs and uh, it's not going to work. Uh, we always knew the long pole in the tent was getting from the carrier to Desert One, and we had a couple options for Desert One. That was the real issue. Uh, the other point in my mind is that the Navy never flew the flight profiles that we had requested that they fly to stress the aircraft. We knew the Sikorsky was a delicate airplane, and that each one of them were kind of unique mechanical beasts. And as a result, uh, in December, uh, after meeting with the Sikorsky tech reps uh, at, in Connecticut, uh, we sent a message out approved by the chairman to the uh, ASW squadron and the admiral commanding uh, that whole fleet out there to fly these profiles, stressing the aircraft, hour and a half, then two and a half hours, then three and a half hours, to finally they had them out there for a total of eight hours, which was the capability of those aircraft. Uh, the Navy never flew it. Colonel Pittman uh, went out to the carrier in January, saw that they had not flown any of the profiles, talk to the Admiral and talk to the squadron commander, who, by the way, had been at Yuma Proving Ground and knew what the mission was. So he knew the significance of what he was being asked to do. He just didn't do it. Uh, Pittman went out again in February. They hadn't flown any of the extended profiles. He then went uh, on the way back to Sink Pack, who was responsible for the fleet, uh, Admiral Foley, and asked that he please do this. Foley said, yes, we'll do it, no problem. Went back, the chairman sent a very strong message to Foley saying, you must fly this stuff. Uh, you've got to fly the profiles. Foley sent a message back, we're going to do that, no problem. 
Pittman shows up with the operational crew in uh, April and he looks at the logbooks, they'd never flown more than an hour and a half. He picked up our sat phone, the one of the only one we had on the carrier, and called Vaught, who by this time was at Wadikina, all the operational forces had come forward, and said, hey, they never flew the profile. What do we do? And Vaught said, we got no choice. We got to go with what we got. I absolutely believe that had those profiles been flown, that we would have found these mechanical problems the birds had uh, in time to fix them before the actual operation took place. So, uh, you know, those are the two things in my mind. Number one, we never had quality intelligence as to where the hostages were inside the embassy. We only had 30 minutes to clear it. Uh, and, you know, that was quite a task. And number two, the flight profiles weren't flown, which did not stress the aircraft, which when they were stressed, crumped. End of message. Awesome, sir. Thank you so much. Get into to the follow-on mission, Honey Badger. I got a quote from you, and I want to kind of get your thoughts on what you thought when you when you said this. Institutions do not like change, particularly mandated change. Any true seriously major shift in force structure requires top-down pressure and congressional engagement on a continuous basis. Ooh, had to get that out there. Sorry. What What were your thoughts? You know, what makes you say that? Well, my experience. I mean, I've got a lot of scar tissue, and most of it's related to that quote. Uh, when it was clear to all of us in the task force that the Navy and the Air Force was very grudging about this whole, quote, special ops stuff, uh, particularly the Navy. Uh, Meyer was very pro, uh, but you had the Air Force chief of staff and the Naval uh, chief of Naval operations, and they just didn't like this stuff. Uh, it was uh, call it loose cannons on a rolling deck, high risk, low payoff, going to embarrass the service, a deviation from the core purpose of why my service exists. Uh, it, the, Arm, the Air Force had always treated the special ops wing as the kind of the redheaded stepchild in the closet of the Air Force. They were very, they were on the bottom of the barrel in terms of parts priority. Many of the aircraft were basically hangar queens. Uh, the personnel assigned there were not the most elite in the Air Force. Uh, the Navy just wanted nothing to do with it. They were didn't want to hazard their carriers. They didn't want to conform to anything that was not their deal. Uh, and, you know, they were quite acerbic about it. And I briefed these guys twice a day. And, you know, you could just tell by the body language and their questions and their kind of lack of cooperation uh, that they were not happy with this whole thing. They, they knew they had to do it because the chairman and the secretary of defense and the uh, head of the NSC were there every day, too pressing it. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was one thing. Honey Badger, it became a major issue because now we were kind of legitimized in terms of structure and priority. And so tell we, us a little bit about Honey Badger. Like what was the concept as the follow-on mission? And then how did it lead to everything that, you know, you saw? Okay. Uh, and this is really crucially important in terms of the growth of SAW. Uh, until the rescue failed, we were a very small, discreet program managed by the chairman in great secrecy, with OPSEC being the overarching issue. The afternoon after the rescue failed, we got a message directly from General uh, from uh, President Carter, we being in the JTF in the Pentagon. You must be prepared to run an in extremis hostage extraction 
within 10 days of notification. Uh, you will go with whatever forces you have now or can develop, but you must be prepared to take casualties and it will not be a clean operation. Uh, so that's basically, okay, hey, we're going. So we knew from experience with the uh, Joint Task Force that there needed to be some radical changes. And the chairman and the Secretary of Defense basically signed off on a, call it organizational structure for the first time was called Honey Badger. That was the cover for a line item budgeted organization within the Department of Defense to actually provide legitimacy for what we were doing. And perhaps most importantly, a budget and line item authority, something we didn't have before. With this, we were able, uh, the chairman sat us all down uh, very soon after the uh, main body came back and called, uh, had what I call a clean slate uh, discussion. And he said very clearly, I want you all, and he had in the service chiefs, their ops deps, uh, and ourselves, General Vaught and General Vaught's key staff and said, I want you to write down what you need to do this better. What did you, what do you need you didn't have? What do we don't have now that we need to get? Clean slate, whatever you think is the right answer. Well, everybody, uh, you know, put down their two cents. Uh, Colonel Lenahan, who was the J2, uh, our chief of staff then, Rod Paschal, uh, myself and a couple other people kind of synthesized it all down to uh, what we thought was operable, viable, primarily with a budget uh, and additional lift. Uh, we got uh, more, we wanted more AC, EC, MC 130s. We wanted to energize the C5 as part of the program because the C-5 was actually procured uh, as an expeditionary airfield aircraft. Well, you know, if we can land a C-5 at Desert One and pull out very reliable helicopters, in this case, uh, General Vaught believed that the, uh, what we call now the Little Birds, the OH-6s, would be, uh, you know, up-engined and up-gunned and all, would be an ideal aircraft for this sort of situation. Plus, we with a C-5, we could bring in uh, basically the full range of aircraft, uh, as, helicopters, uh, as needed. Uh, this also included, for the first time, the uh, use of the entire Ranger Battalion, 1st and 2nd Ranger Battalions, for airfield seizures, and other security measures in support of Delta. We expanded Delta to include a support element uh, and additional uh, spaces, uh, manpower spaces and uh, funds. Uh, General Meyer on his own had a, had a separate force structure that he was absolutely adamant be developed. Number one was what was called the Field Operations Group, now ISA, Secret Army of Northern Virginia. And his point was, I'm never again gonna send U.S. Army elements against a target without credible confirmatory intelligence if I have to do it myself. And that was the basis of, of FOG ISA, to have a real human, covert and intel collection capability. And he married those with the CIA and that provided us some leeway with the Title 10 issues in terms of intelligence collection. Basically, we could switch people back and forth between the agency and ISA for specific missions. They also became the support element for Delta doing forward reconnaissance and support structure uh, with 
as that time, Beirut and Lebanon as being our principal uh, focus. The other element was the creation of an Army Special Operations Airlift Organization. It began as Task Force 160, and now, of course, the SOAR, the SOAR. The entire brigade flew out to Norton Air Force Base, where they ran through a whole assembly line that converted them from vanilla rotary wing to a special ops capability. Uh, refuel probes, night instrumentation on the paneling, up-engining, uh, blade folding kits, rotor brakes, quiet T-tails, gun systems, pods, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, much of a shock to the Army. I mean, all sorts of hate mail uh, came in from very senior officers and retired four stars as to how Meyer was destroying the army and deviating from the core structure. And, you know, the world was not going to be the same. Uh, we needed to focus on the fold of gap and not on this weird and crazy stuff out here on the uh, periphery. Uh, the Rangers became a rotational special ops organization. Uh, they were specifically tasked, uh, when tasked, to do airfield seizures and uh, location security for Delta so Delta could concentrate on the discrete focused work that they were best at, not having to waste assets securing street corners and all that sort of thing. Uh, this in turn engendered more hate mail. Uh, from the internal army because the Rangers were designed to be uh, conventional light infantry. You're doing this weird spook stuff, you know, bad. I mean, I carried the back channel messages from the sinks and the internal army to General Meyer on this subject. And some of them were really venomous, you know, and he would read them and laugh and say, you know, continue on. Well, going back to the scar tissue issue, uh, we had the authority, which we had to exercise. We would go to various Army staff types or uh, DOD staff types and say, you know, we're going to buy this or do that. And here's the line out. Well, they didn't want to do it. And so, you know, we'd go back to Meyer, the chairman, and the chairman had hit him over the head with a hammer, and they would do it. But it was clear they weren't happy in doing it. Uh, we then uh, had a clandestine program uh, authorized by General Meyer where several of us would go back door up to the hill and brief the uh, significant members of the House and the Senate uh, to include a key staffer, in this case, Jim Walker for Senator Nunn on the House Armed Services Committee. Well, they approved our budget, you know, the, they approved our budget requirements with just our, you know, 10-minute discussion up on the Hill. And the bureaucracy types to say, well, we can't do this. We don't have the money. You're never going to get the money. Well, we come back the next day with a signed uh, budget item from the Senate. And, you know, they were just dumbfounded. How did you do that? So they were forced to support us. And this was a continuous issue. Uh, and just leaping ahead to General Meyer, when he retired, uh, I did his oral history for the uh, Army War College. And he was very clear when we had the discussion, the only way that large, significant change can take place within the military bureaucracy is strong top-down guidance and congressional support. And so that got everybody's attention, but it also engendered a great deal of dislike. Uh, and all of us walking around the building uh, understood that, you know, we were in somebody's bullseye at the first opportunity they got. So that's the origin of that quote, long answer to your question. Oh, that's a great answer, sir. 
We're going to take a quick break to highlight a GlobalSoft corporate partner, Intrepid. Intrepid is a mission-driven provider of cutting-edge managed attribution technology solutions for government to discreetly and safely conduct sophisticated cyber operations in the most hostile online environments. Their innovative solutions empower advanced online research, investigations, and data collection, while obscuring organizational identity and protecting your mission. Visit intrepidcorp.com academy to register for one of their upcoming virtual training courses to learn more about trending cyber topics such as OSINT research and dark web investigations using their managed attribution solutions. That's www.ntrepidcorp.com academy. So let's roll into Grenada, sir. So what happened there that kind of made it a little bit better and then, you know, and and what was the next step coming out of Grenada? Because it wasn't a huge success. We still had a lot of issues and complications. If you could just highlight a little bit of that. Well, Grenada was a operational organizational mess. Uh, about a year prior to the invasion, which I think was 1983, uh, Gen- uh, President Reagan had... Uh, given a national press briefing where he was showed Grenada and how it was being taken over by the communists and Cuba. And they were building this airport airfield at at Saline, which was the name of the airfield area in Grenada. And it was capable of taking MiGs. And this was also coincidental with all the problems we were having in Central America. And, you know, it was Guevara and the Cubans using Grenada as a training base and then uh, sending their cadres over into Central America to stir up issues with uh, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, et cetera. Well, after that, uh, Lantcom, who was responsible for Grenada, and JSOC were both independently tasked with figuring out how to take over the island and uh, resolve this potential problem uh, at Point Saline. And neither, neither one were told the other was actually working on the issue. So you had these two independent entities working uh, on, rescu- on solving Grenada. So they got to figure out how they're going to share the wealth on the invasion. Well, Schultes was totally focused on Celine and the rescue of the hostages, which were uh, at Grand Anse Beach, just a little bit north of the the airfield. Uh, General uh, Vesey, the chairman, then just drew a line essentially across about the one third of the way up the island and said, okay, Lancom, everything north of that line, JSOC, everything south. Oh, by the way, we're going to include 18th Airborne Corps now because they're going to relieve JSOC, reinforce the program, clear the island, and do all of the support structure stuff necessary uh, to convert it back to a... The concept was... Lant would land to the north with the Marines, clear that, and then get back on their ships after they were relieved by Corps. Uh, JSOC would capture the airfield, rescue the hostages. 82nd Airborne would come in, relieve them. JSOC would go home, and Corps would then the entire island and fix it. Well, uh, this was all done essentially within a two-week period from the time everybody was introduced to each other to the time they actually ran the invasion. Uh, There was no communication between the uh, force commander afloat, Admiral McDonald, with JSOC or the Army. Uh, He hastily brought in General Schwarzkopf, who was then CG the 24th, to be the deputy because Army had a significant role uh, with with a core being involved, but Schwarzkopf had no communication and had, had not met anybody in core or the 82nd Airborne on the program. Uh, JSOC and 
the 82nd got together literally within seven days of invasion uh, because they were both at Fort Bragg. And the plan that they had was, well, uh, JSOC will come in, the Rangers will seize the airfield and rescue the uh, with Delta and would rescue the hostages. 82nd would come in, relieve them, and then they'd go home. Well, the problem was there was absolutely no joint CEOI, the communications directive. The Navy ships afloat could not talk to the Army. They could not talk to Delta. They could not talk to the 82nd Airborne. 82nd Airborne could not talk to JSOC or Delta. Uh, JSOC had programmed uh, helicopters uh, from Barbados with Delta Force to come in and secure Richmond Hill and some other areas. Uh, the Navy SEALs would come in and rescue uh, Sir Paul Schoon, uh, who is near Grand Anse Beach, and eventually the Rangers and or Delta to be determined would rescue the students at Grand Anse, at that time the only known location. <coughs> Small deviation. Uh, the president of the medical school was in Connecticut, and he was daily talking to the students at their barracks dormitory at Grand Anse. Nobody in JSOC 82nd or McDonald's organization knew this. State Department never told defense that this communication line was open and functioning. Had that occurred and JSOC been able to talk to the president who was in Connecticut, we would have known there were two other campuses where the uh, students were at. This was not discovered until the second day of the invasion when the, host, when the rescued students at Grand Anse informed JSOC about the True Blue campus to the south, which then initiated the uh, assault on Calvigny Barracks and the subsequent rescue of those students. So it was just a giant mess operationally. You, you uh, this is one of my favorite quotes in the book. I've written it down. I, I you know, I, I don't do, you know, signature block things where I have quotes, but this is one that I almost want to do. You, you list the three bureaucratic truths. And what I'd like to know is, you know, I, I assume these all come from your experience and then kind of lead into where you think this led up, how this influenced the creation of soft. The first one is services inherently dislike special operations. The second one is significant change must come from outside the bureaucracy. And the third one, bureaucracies are very good at fighting that which they don't want to do. I, I think those are, I love those just so you know, nothing has changed, you know, since, since, since all of this occurred. It's very disturbing if you look at the, 2017 National Defense Authorization Act, Section 922, where Congress is directing the Department of Defense to do more with SOLIC and SOCOM to make them more, to give them a little bit more juice than they previously did. It's the same level of resistance. Can you talk a little bit about how we flowed out of Grenada attitude-wise and and and, and kind of how that really shaped the, the Cohen-Nunn Amendment? Well, uh, immediately after uh, the invasion, you know, it was clear it was a big mess. Uh, Congress uh, had several hearings on the issue and said, how did this occur? Why was it so messy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, General Schultes testified in open, hey, you know, it was just minor problems. We can sort it out, you know, no issue, blah, blah, blah. Well, at that time, uh, Brigadier General Wayne Downing, who was part of our clandestine operation on the Hill, uh, talked to Locker and he said, hey, you really need to have uh, Senator Nunn talk to Schultes behind closed doors, where Schultes can be much more direct about what the issues were. Uh, and that's exactly what occurred. In fact, the evening after 
uh, Schultes made his open testimony. Uh, there was a small session with Locker, Nunn, and Cohen, and Schultes and Downing. And at that point, Schultes just unloaded about the whole issue and was, you know, very direct, laid everything out as to what the issues were. Downing reinforced that. And Downing gave a memo to Locker as to what needed to be done to fix it. Well, the next thing that occurs is Nunn and Cohen uh, and Goldwater and Nichols all get together and figure out how they're going to save soft. And they don't want to do it. Uh, they do not want to direct the services down at that nitty-gritty level to increase JSOC, give them a budget, sign them forces, uh, and create a overarching headquarters, in this case, like a U.S. SOCOM. Uh, and they held several hearings with the service chiefs on this. Service chiefs all said, not a problem, you know, minor tweaks, we can fix it, blah, blah, blah. And at that point, beneath all of this, uh, the Air Force had been slow rolling the MCAC-130 procurement program, which was a pet rock of Senator Nunn because the manufacturing capability was in Atlanta. And he had written in personally the funding for this procurement over four years. Every year, the Air Force said, yeah, we're going to do it. And then when they got the budget, they would put it below the line, which means that they're not going to fund it internally. That's, you know, they're not just not going to do the procurement. Well, finally, a note came in uh, back door to none that the Air Force for the fourth time had put the procurement of the MCACs below the line. He picked up his notebook and he threw it against the wall uh, with several expletives. And at that point, he then understood that Congress was going to have to write in the requirements in unequivocal language and the services could not avoid it, which is what he did. The immediate aftermath of that was the Goldwater-Nichols Joint uh, Service Amendment, MFP-11, which was a specific special ops funding line the services could not screw with. Uh, and of course, uh, the Nunn-Cohen Amendment creating U.S. SOCOM and the just went bananas. Uh, you know, they didn't want to do it. They fought it, and suddenly they had no choice. It was statutory with a budget in place that they could not screw with. Uh, but they managed to screw with it to some degree. You know, the battles over manning a the ASD Solik position and the manning of SOCOM. They got the dregs of the earth and General uh, Steiner excuse me, I got a mental block there. General Steiner was sending back door uh, to none the poor quality of officers that he was getting, you know, passed over promotion, passed over for command, never made the war college, never made CG and SC, et cetera, et cetera. And so Congress just started mandating the fill levels for JSOC, literally. Uh, and the quality obviously increased, but it, it took that sort of thing. Every opportunity the bureaucracy had to slow roll execution, they did. Uh, and to a degree today, they still do it. Representative Daniels, he wanted a separate service. Yeah. And, the, and the Senate wanted a four-star SOCOM headquarters with a soft budget. They also added in the... ASD Solik piece to handle the policy and the oversight. Do you think this is working? Do you think that was the optimum solution looking back? Uh, I don't think a six service would work, primarily because the, uh, the manning of the special ops organizations is internal to the services. The services are required to fill it and uh, procure for it uh, 
to a large degree. A six service, I do not think would work because you really need the great variety of capability, Air Force, Navy, Army, uh, that they bring to the table. The four-star headquarters, absolutely essential. Uh, <clears throat> the issue has always been, are they administrative or are they operational? Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld wanted to make them operational and essentially run the uh, war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the sink then, General Brown demurred and said, no, we're not going to do that. Our job is to supply the forces and the geographical sink is required to fight them. And it's been that way ever since. But in terms of management of the forces before they're deployed, that four-star headquarters is essential, uh, as is MFP uh, 11. Uh, if they didn't have either of those, the forces that they sent the sinks, I believe would be uh, greatly diminished. So, you know, in 2017, in the National Defense Authorization Act, Congress did what they called the SOLIC reform. And um, it seems like every year in the NDAA, they keep having to threaten the Department of Defense more and more to do stuff. On 23 October 2019, Congressman Thornberry, Congressman Smith, Senator Reid, and Senator Inhofe, the big four on the Armed Services Committees for the House and the Senate, sent a letter specifically to the department, basically telling the Secretary of Defense that they weren't doing anything. They weren't moving. You know, it'd been four years. Everything that you described in your book, Honest to God, sir, looked like they were following it as a playbook. Um, and the reason Congress wanted to do reform for SOLIC is because SOCOM is four times the size it was. Its budget is significantly busier. And the operational deployments, I want to say they're like seven times what they were. And there is no, there, there's no end in sight. I mean, the, the theaters want more special operations to the point that the, the chairman is having to put them on a, on a diet and just kind of say, look, I can't, we can't do this. There's not enough. I guess my question to you is, is, is you know, what, what are your feelings on empowering Solik to an undersecretary position and giving the person some juice so they can actually deal with service secretaries, you know, suit to suit, and then kind of help and support U.S. SOCOM, which, to be honest with you, it seems like a salmon swimming up a very narrow stream all the time with a lot of grizzly bears standing on the side, deciding if they're going to eat breakfast or lunch as they look at that salmon. Uh, I think the ASD SOLIC should have what I would call near secretary authority. Uh, he definitely, he or she definitely needs to be able to control the budget issues within the services for special operations. Uh, they also, he also needs to be able to manage the MFP 11 program and to have a significant oar in the water in terms of procurement, all of which now are managed by the service secretaries. <clears throat> and they're in competition with the conventional elements of those services. Uh, as a result, uh, the special ops folks basically are either gifted or ignored uh, within each service. Uh, the secretary, uh, ASD, needs to be able to have legal statutory authority uh, to actually direct funding, uh, to direct force structures, and to direct policy. That's awesome, sir. Listen, I, I know I want to get ready to close this out, but I sent you a question. I want to read your answers because I love it. Um, just and kind of when I'm done, just kind of tell us a little bit about what you were thinking when you said this. I asked you, I said, hey, what advice would you give soft leadership today? <laughs> this is priceless. Focus on the mission, not the process. The second thing you said was perfect is the enemy of good enough. 
Those are awesome because I, I spent the last three years at SOCOM and, and it seemed like we were just drowning in process. Uh, one of the problems with a big headquarters and JSOC, as I said, has grown from 32 to a gazillion SOCOM, uh, the same, uh, particularly in the requirements and the procurement and the, I would call it the mission processing. Uh, you know, the process becomes the mission instead of the mission. Uh, and that's very slow. It's ponderous. It's basically warfare by committee. Uh, one of the great advantages we had in the JTF is with a very small staff, you got a decision in a hurry. May not be the best decision, but it is a decision, so at least you can move forward. That was sort of the point of my perfect is the enemy of the good. Uh, you know, risk management in some people's mind is not taking a risk or it's processing it to such a degree that, you know, you can't get a decision because everybody's got to ponder it and come in with their own idea. But the process becomes the mission and then the real mission is ignored. Uh, that requires a very strong commander who is willing to take risk. Uh, at each of the levels. Uh, and even though he understands that this may not be the best solution, it is a solution for this particular point in time. And, you know, we need to move forward as opposed to sit. Sir, that's awesome. Um, well, listen, I know we've, we've eaten up a lot of your time today. One awesome book, straight up awesome. I don't read a lot. I'll tell you, I read physical books. That's the only book I've physically read in two years. I've now been, I got, I put it down to do the audible. Awesome book. And I've given, Rick Lamb has got a copy. Um, hey, I want to personally, as a special ops guy, thank you for what you did for my generation. I was in the first recruited special forces class of, as a branch, and it would never exist had you not been there. That's a fact. You are a true soft champion. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I, it's not something I planned for. It was all evolutionary. I just happened to be at, at a place and time. You know, life is luck and timing. Thank you so much for your time, sir. We really appreciate it. Great book. We're going to promote the heck out of it. So thank you. Amazon Reviews. Thank you. Soft Spot is brought to you by the Global Soft Foundation, a 501c3 based in Tampa, Florida. If you liked what you heard, subscribe and give us a five-star review. If you're new to us, you can find out more about the foundation at gsoft.org. That's golfsierraoctoberfoxtrot.org.